Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. As always, the thoughts expressed on this show are not the thoughts of Howard Community College or the opinions. And any legal advice you think you derive from this show is not legal advice. In fact, it's just a discussion of important legal issues that you should be aware of. Today, we have a rare opportunity to speak to a member of the bench. It is Judge Jeffrey Paul Russell. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you, Bob. It's nice to have you here. I'd like to give a brief background. Jeff Russell attended the University of Maryland College Park, where he was an editor on the student newspaper, The Diamondback. He matriculated to the University of Maryland Law School in Baltimore, where he was on the Law Review, an eminent publication. And he graduated, I believe, in 1981. Am I correct on that one? That's right, 1981. And took the bar, passed the bar, and became a member of the organized bar in 1981. One caveat, I did give Jeff his first job. (laughs) Well, and you've also uh, done some research because I'd forgotten about the newspaper at work. There you go. We, We try and keep up with things on this. So just a little bit of background, when did you decide that you were interested in becoming a lawyer? It's probably the only profession I ever considered seriously. I started thinking about being an attorney or a lawyer when I heard, when my grandmother told me that my grandfather, who had who died when I was about six years old, but to whom I was very fond, when she told me he was a lawyer, I didn't know that because he worked in the State Department as a uh, in like international law, doing treaties and things, and uh, but once I heard he was a lawyer, I uh, just decided that that uh, that's what I would like to be interested in. That's what I, I wanted to do. My, when I was uh, in fourth grade in uh, elementary school, I uh, fourth or fifth grade, I actually used to sit down with my father, and we had an old Encyclopedia Britannica. It was might have been a new Brita- Britannica at that time. But uh, and we used to sit down and spend about oh, 10 or 20 minutes every day reading the Constitution, uh, which I thought was a most incredible idea that uh, when my father explained to me that the Constitution was the set of rules that everybody, including the government and the police and everybody, had to follow, that uh, it, things that were in the Constitution were things that... Uh, were the law, the ultimate law, and uh, that really fascinated me. It reinforced my interest in the law and becoming an attorney. Actually, I had a a friend who, uh, again, when I was in fourth grade, who uh, made a a homemade wooden rifle that he brought to school, and I had just finished reading about the the, uh, Second Amendment with a with my father a couple of days earlier, and uh, got involved in going from classroom to classroom with uh, my friend, explaining why it was the teachers couldn't take this wooden rifle away from him. I had a, <laughs> I had a jaundiced, I had, a, I had a, a, an inaccurate view of the first of the Second Amendment at the time. However, apparently the Supreme Court has come to agree with me, uh, agree with fourth grade me. So, did the fourth grade you succeed in your advocacy on behalf of your friend? Yes, the uh, the school thought it was quite amusing. They actually had us go to five or six different classrooms to uh, to discuss this. This was uh, in rural Prince George's County many many years ago, and uh, it was uh, it was gun country. I understand. 
And so when you graduated from law school, you actually went to work for a series of private law firms. Is that right? Yeah, I started out in Silver Spring uh, working with you uh, in a a firm with uh, uh, some rather remarkable uh, people, Uh, (laughs) friends to this day, actually, everyone. This was back in 1981, and uh, uh, it was a remarkable experience. It was quite a firm. Then I went into practice uh, with a, a friend that I was on a law review with for a few years. And a then, former uh, guest I of the show. Into, uh, house counsel with uh, insurance companies and uh, worked there and for a major transit organization for several years. Uh, and uh, ultimately, uh, in 1998, I came to the District of Columbia to and became a workers' compensation trial judge, and then in 2005, the District of Columbia changed the way administrative appeals and workers' compensation cases were done and created something called the Compensation Review Board, which reviews the work of the trial judges in the district, the trial judges that do workers' compensation cases in the district, and I've been on the Compensation Review Board ever since. Had you ever fathomed before you became a judge that you might do so someday? Actually, I never thought that it would be something that um, I would do because I I was never very particularly active in things like bar associations and those types of uh, jobs, uh, those types of positions tend to require a good deal of schmoozing that I've never been very good at. In my field, in workers' compensation, the these jobs actually tend to go more frequently to people with background in the uh, in the particular field of law because it's I don't like other judges I don't hear criminal cases I don't hear uh, civil cases I just handle workers compensation cases and so I became fairly expert in the field and that got me an entree into becoming a judge and it was, but that it was never something that I thought about doing. As a matter of fact, it's uh, kind of ironic that I ended up in workers' compensation because back when I was in private practice, I hated workers' compensation. I didn't, I wasn't any good at it. At least I didn't think I was. I found it boring. But then uh, after uh, handling uh, workers' compensation cases for a few years, I uh, I found it was very interesting. It, it, it was mentally stimulating was something new. Back when I went to law school, when you and I went to law school, it was not a subject that was taught very often in law schools. It's being taught more now. But the more I learned about it, the more interesting it became. And the more uh, important I determined that it was, I I found out how how important workers' compensation was to society and and to our legal system. Let's talk uh, about that just a little bit. I'm I'm glad I went this route. So let's talk about that a little bit. Workers' compensation is one branch of what people call administrative law. Is that correct? That's, that's correct. It's, uh, it's a system that's been established to be handled by, for, uh, in a technical sense, by the executive branch as opposed to the judicial branch in, in almost every state. Not every state, but almost every state. Although, uh, in Maryland, it is interesting. Workers' compensation cases start as administrative matters, but uh, if they ultimately get appealed, 
whoever loses uh, at the administrative level, the ultimate appeals in Maryland actually go to the circuit courts, so they actually enter into the judicial system. Uh, they, that doesn't happen uh, in most places. Uh, in the District of Columbia, for example, the, the appeals that would go to the, the courts, to the judiciary, come to us, the Compensation Review Board. Uh, of course, our work does get reviewed by the District of Columbia Court of Appeals, uh, ultimately, but uh, we're essentially administrative. Okay. So let's talk about comp just in a general manner, you know, for practical purposes. If you're a student at Howard Community College or a member of the staff or things like that, and you get injured at work, what is it that you hypothetically do? Howard Community College being in Maryland, and it's been a long time since I've practiced in Maryland, but what typically you do is, is well, if you're wise, you hire an attorney, and uh, then you advise your employer of your injury. You tell them how it happened. You be sure you do it sooner rather than later because there are time frames that can bar your claim. If the uh, employer doesn't uh, accept your claim, then then you file with the Workers' Compensation Commission in Maryland or with the Office of Workers' Compensation in the District of Columbia and your claim gets decided administratively uh, in Maryland by a workers' compensation commissioner in the District of Columbia. It could, it could initially start in front of a claims examiner who can deny your claim and then or grant your claim. And in that case, uh, if someone, if the employer or the claimant wishes to or the employee wishes to appeal, then it goes to the Administrative Hearings Division, where the there is a workers' compensation judge that hears the case, and then if either of the parties is dissatisfied, it gets appealed to us uh, on the Compensation Review Board. Whereas in Maryland, if it, uh, it goes to the Workers' Compensation Commission, and if either party is dissatisfied with it, they appeal to the circuit court. Okay. So it seems that in both the district and in Maryland, if one is injured during work, it's important to make sure that one's employer knows. Are there forms that you need to fill out for these things, too? Well, yes, there are. In Maryland, it's my understanding, it's my recollection, the forms are a lot more important than they are in the District of Columbia. The most important thing in either jurisdiction is to make certain that your supervisor is aware of it, the person who's in charge of the workplace where you're working. They're the person that, if you, if, in the in the District of Columbia specifically, there is a form you're supposed to fill out, but as long as you've actually told your employer, your supervisor in charge of your workplace that you were injured, and it's also very important that you tell them you were injured at work, and then you do it within the 30 days which the statute requires, then you'll be covered in almost every circumstance. So what happens if you tell your supervisor or your employer and the 30 days go by and they say you didn't? Well, that's then you've got a disputed fact, and that's a question of its notice. That would be notice of the, uh, uh, of the injury. Uh, that might be one of the things that you have to have a a hearing on either okay. in front of the judge or in front of the hearing examiner in the district, I mean the claims examiner in the District of Columbia, and it would be up to the, ultimately the workers' compensation judge 
to decide whether or not you really did tell them and if what you told them was sufficient. It's not enough to tell your employer, particularly in, Mar in the district, that you're hurt and you can't work. It's very important that you tell them that you hurt, that you are hurt, and that you are hurt, your, your injury came from your employment, because knowing that you're not able to work because of an injury is not considered adequate notice in the district. You have, you have to make sure they understand that it was a work-related injury. And you report things to your supervisor. Presumably, you need to go see some kind of health care provider to provide documentation of the specific injury you have and whether you can work or not and that sort of thing. Is that right? Well, that's always, that's always uh, the best way to proceed. Uh, and your medical care is ultimately the responsibility of the insurance company or your employer if they're self-insured. But uh, you, will, you will go and you will get medical care and you'll, in both Maryland and the District of Columbia, you, you are able to choose your own doctor, generally speaking. If you're a government employee in the District of Columbia, you have to uh, go to a doctor on, from a list of doctors. But generally speaking, the, you make a selection of the doctor that you want to go to and you get the care from the doctor and typically the doctor will indicate whether or not you are fit to go back to work and will provide medications and treatment, which will be the responsibility of the employer or their insurance company. And a good thing to know is that if it is a workers' compensation claim, even if your employer is ultimately not found to be responsible, your doctor as long as they, they took the, your case on as a workers' compensation came, can't sue you for uh, the medical bill uh, if you don't pay it. So, so how, how uh, do they get paid? You, you, what, excuse me? How do they get paid then? Well, they ultimately get paid if the case gets found to be compensable, which they almost always are. Okay. Most doctors know a workers' compensation case when they hear it, but they sometimes there are doctors that end up not getting paid. I see. So I know that there are rules about, like, if you get up in the morning and you leave your house and you're driving to work and, say, you get in a crash or something, that in some circumstances that's covered and the coming and going rules. Can you enlighten us a little bit about how that works in the District of Columbia? Yeah, sure. So you use the phrase that is used in the field, coming and going. Uh, generally speaking, the general rule is that Injuries that occur when you are on your way to or from work are, are not considered injuries uh, that are covered under workers' compensation. They are just, they're covered like any other injury you might happen to suffer. The person responsible for the injury would be responsible for your injuries or damages. There are exceptions to that. If, for example, your employer has a parking lot or a facility where all the employees go before they check in and you're injured while in either the parking lot the employer might own or they might rent or that it might just be a parking lot that they know that everybody that works there parks in and they encourage it, particularly if they subsidize the parking. If you get injured in the parking lot that you will frequently be considered to have been at work, but getting to the parking lot, is, you're on your own. There's how about, how about that, just uh, for a second, how about coming home? Same rules? 
the same rule same rules apply coming home you're once you're uh once you're on the road to home you're you're not covered now there are some exceptions okay. if there are some people whose jobs require them to have uh have an automobile uh, for example, uh, salespeople frequently have automobiles that are assigned to them by their by their employer, and they work on the road. Uh, and their uh, course of employment, which is the term that's used, ex- frequently will extend farther than an employee who only works at a fixed location, because uh, one of the risks that that their employment subjects them to as an as an integral part of their job is the type of risks called the risks of the highway, the kinds of things that will happen if you're driving out on the road uh, if that's what your job requires. And even some under some circumstances, if you're in the company vehicle and you're on your way to work or you're on your way home, there are circumstances in which that can be considered a work-related injury. Um, because of the nature of your job. Sounds like something one should consult a lawyer about if one is confronted with such a situation. That's exactly right. That's why the first thing I said was is you should talk to an attorney because these things, although workers' compensation, when it first started many years ago, was set up to be fairly simple and quick, like so many things in the legal and non-legal world, life has gotten much more complicated back when the workers' compensation first started back in the, about 4,000 years ago with the Sumerians, which is uh, now in Iraq. And they were, uh, back then, uh, it was essentially a, a system where workers would be compensated for losing a finger or a thumb, and they and it was very it was a fairly simple thing back then, but it's gotten a lot more complicated since then. It might be interesting to your listeners to know that the state of Maryland was the first state in the United States to ever pass a workers' compensation law. Uh, they did that, uh, I believe, around 1904. Uh, Maryland, New York, I think Massachusetts, and one other state. Uh, passed workers' compensation laws, and uh, but they were all four found to be un- unconstitutional. Um, in fact, uh, there's a very famous uh, incident that happened in New York in 1911 it's called the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. It was a, a shirt manufacturing company in New York City that uh, they, the uh, employer actually locked all the doors in the factory so that uh, people couldn't go outside and have breaks and uh, couldn't leave early and uh, and such. And there was a horrible fire in the uh, shirt in the Triangle Shirtwaist fa- factory. About 240 people burned to death. And the day before, this is in 1911. The day before this accident happened. The New York Supreme, New York State Supreme Court had invalidated the New York State Workers' Compensation Law and had determined it was unconstitutional. So uh, all those 240 families were ultimately able to get. Uh, they tried to sue the uh, the, ca- the company under the old uh, tort system, like you would do for a normal personal injury case. Uh, they lost that case, but they were ultimately awarded 
uh, about $75 a family, which uh, in 1911, $75. In 19, today, that would be about $1,800. That was for losing your, uh, your breadwinner, the person that was uh, responsible for feeding your whole family, $1,800. Following that, uh, that incident, uh, there was a big nationwide call across the country to start reexamining uh, the way that we handled workplace injuries. And in Maryland, uh, again, 1914 is when the current workers' compensation law went, back, went into effect. Uh, it was around the same time in the District of Columbia that uh, they got a workers' compensation law. In the, the 30s, 19, when Franklin Roosevelt was president, uh, the very first woman who was a Secretary of Labor, Frances Perkins, was a strong advocate of having workers' compensation made well, to federalize it and have the federal government uh, provide workers' compensation benefits uh, for everyone. Everyone. Now, when you say everyone, you mean everyone federal employee-wise, or do you mean even all private employers? Everyone in the nation. It was uh, basically like Social Security was going to occur. That didn't ultimately pass. 1956, uh, the year that I was born, in fact, uh, they, it's when they created Social Security Disability, and initially the Social Security Disability Program was intended to be a national workers' compensation program. But that, too, that part of it was also struck down. Many conservatives thought it was too socialist to do it. And the last time a serious attempt at federalizing workers' compensation occurred was in the 70s around when they created the Occupational Safety and Health Act, or OSHA, you may have heard, sure. your, your listeners may have heard of. Federal workers' compensation, federalizing of workers' compensation was initially part of the OSHA framework, but that too failed. But um, ultimately, um, it's now across the nation, 49 of the 50 states have mandatory workers' compensation programs. Texas is the only one that doesn't. Shocker. Yeah, right. There are uh, 32 states uh, leave it up to private insurance companies, employers to obtain private insurance companies. Seven of them run it as a government program, and the other 11 have partial private and partial government-run programs. The reason it's important to have these uh, is that uh, before there were workers' compensation programs, the uh, only uh, recourse that an injured worker had would have been to file a lawsuit against their employer. And as you may have discussed on other programs dealing with personal injury, as you as um, as you know and your your listeners may have heard, there are certain there are defenses uh, to your standard personal injury cases. Is the, the contributory negligence assumption negligence, of risk uh, yeah. in which if you contribute to your own injury to any degree at all, in some states you're completely barred from getting anything from your negligent employer. In other states you would have comparative negligence where your damages would be limited by the percentage by which you were deemed to be responsible for it. There let me let me focus you on something there. Servant doctrine. 
in which if you were if you were injured by the negligence of a fellow employee, the employer wasn't responsible, and there was something called the assumption of risk or the voluntary assumption of known risk, as my court professor in law school used to call it, in which case if you knew that the job that you were doing or the work you were doing was dangerous and you got hurt, then you were deemed to have assumed the risk and your claim was barred. What's important about workers' compensation is that those three concepts were removed from the question. So under workers' compensation systems in virtually any virtually every jurisdiction, the forty nine states where they where there are workers' compensation statutes, your claim isn't barred just because you were negligent in contributing to your own injury, or your claim isn't barred if a co-employee was negligent and hurt you, or if you're doing work that you know is dangerous and that you could be hurt doing it, you're not deemed to have waived your right to workers' compensation coverage under the concept of the assumption of risk. So those are very important important aspects that differentiate workers' compensation from regular or tort personal injury cases. That's There's something that's referred to in the field as the grand bargain. What workers give up in the workers' compensation system in return for not being barred by contributory negligence or the fellow servant rule or by assumption of risk, they give up the right to obtain judgments or awards for pain and suffering. What that means is that your damages, what you get from your workers' compensation case, if it's a compensable one, you get your medical bills paid, you get for the rest of your life if you need them, theoretically, and you get your wages, the lost wages that you, any wages that you've lost because of your injury. And then there's another type of benefits called scheduled benefits, which means if you get a disability to a part of your body, such as your arm or your hand, your leg or your foot, There are, most states have something called a schedule where you get a certain number of weeks based upon what percentage, you get weeks of benefits based upon a, your percentage of disability that that body part has suffered. By the way, that... Um, harkens all the way back to those Sumerians. They started the concept of the schedule injuries. So if you lose a finger, it's worth a certain amount of money. If your arm is disabled, it's worth a certain amount of money and so forth. That's right. And it's it's based upon how badly the injury, and different jurisdictions handle it differently, but the theoretical underpinning of it is, is the greater the impact that the injury has upon your ability to use the body part as a matter uh, in, in what's called an industrial use setting. Uh, that is to say, the, the, the more the injury interferes with your ability to use the injured body part to work, the higher di your disability rating will be. Part of it's determined by a medical rating, uh, an impairment rating, but added to that or taken into consideration along with the impairment rating is the degree to which the medical impairment affects your ability to earn wages. 
Well, we're going to be getting to wind up here very shortly concerning this. It sounds like we're going to have to have you back on to have a more detailed discussion of some other aspects of things. But I want to thank you, Judge Jeffrey Paul Russell, for appearing on Everyday Law and ask if you'd consider appearing again sometime. I'd be happy to, Bob. I had a very good time. I enjoyed it, and I hope that your listeners take away a useful nugget or two. Well, thank you very much. Anybody who has any questions for Judge Russell or me or any of the other guests on the show can email me at bobseverydaylaw at gmail.com. And from all the folks here at Howard Community College, we thank you and look forward to the next episode. Thanks very much, Jeff. 